Well, amen. Hmm. Amen. We'll open your Bibles if you haven't already to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm sure you will remember that last week, having described faith as, and to borrow Kent Hughes' words, that which makes the future present and the invisible seen, and having discussed how the stories of Abel and Enoch and Noah all teach us that faith affects our thinking and our standing and our worship and our communion and our witness, I concluded by saying that in the light of these, and I use those quotations from uh, the commercials that we've been hearing for the last several months, um, but in light of these unprecedented times, in light of these uncertain times, now more than ever, we need to be the people that God has called us to be. And I said that uh, part of that is, or that includes, in Paul's words, uh, walking by faith and not by sight. And many of us, I'm sure, left contemplating exactly what that means. What does it mean uh, to walk by faith and not by sight? What does that look like? And even if you were in a small group this week, one of the questions, or I guess it was a group of questions, there were three questions toward the end of the list that some of you even discussed. You you talked about what, um, how specifically, the question was, how specifically are you or should you be living by faith? And what challenges make that difficult? And how can you help each other grow and endure in these areas? So it may have been something that with with that discussion, but even from the message itself, it might have been a, a thought that you had or ruminated over throughout the course of the week. What does that look like? And fortunately for us, the next example or illustration that we're given by the writer answers that question. We're, we're going to answer that question tonight. He uses a man whose story takes a lot longer to tell than Enoch's did. Right? Enoch's was four verses. This gentleman's uh, life is explained in 14 chapters. And he's the man that Paul calls the father of all who believe. And that, of course, is Abraham. The story of Abraham. Now, I I want to remind us, of course, that tonight the call and the challenge is not for us to be like Abraham. The call and the challenge is to exhibit the faith that he exhibited. And there is a difference. We're to exhibit that faith because the faith that elicits, the faith that we have elicits the same things that the faith Abraham had it, those things that that Abraham's faith elicited will be elicited in our lives as well by faith because we possess the same faith that Abraham possessed. There's only one faith that our confession that I mentioned last week. There is the our faith is saving faith is the alone instrument of our justification. It doesn't vary from person to person. So just as it affected the same things last week, our faith is affected by, uh, or our faith affects certain things, just like Noah's faith. Our faith elicits the same things that Abraham's faith elicited. 
And there are four that we find in our passage tonight. One is obedience. One is distinctiveness. There's reasonableness. And the last is anticipation. So faith elicits obedience, distinctiveness, reasonableness, and anticipation. And before we begin, let's pray together. Father, this is your word, and while the grass may wither and the flower, flowers may fade, we believe this, your word, will endure forever. And in these moments, please write its truth upon our hearts. Assure us of and strengthen the faith that you've given us, and give us rest for our souls. Would you use me this evening as you see fit? In Jesus' name and for the sake of his church, I pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, well let's jump right in and look at the first thing that faith elicits. And as I said, it is obedience. Verse 8 says this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, the writer is obviously referring to that which we read in Genesis chapter 12 when God called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia to a land that God would eventually show him. And I want to read those first four verses of Genesis 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him. Now the emphasis in those first four verses of Genesis chapter 12 um, are twofold. The, the emphasis, he's emphasizing two things and he's doing so simultaneously. The first is on God's initiative and call uh, for Abram to go. God initiates the relationship with Abram. He tells him to go. And secondly, the emphasis is on the promise that that God gives to Abraham. He promises him um, a land and a people and a name that would be great. Hebrews 11, though, does things a little different. The writer's emphasis is different. The writer's emphasis here is on Abram's response of obedience, and not just his response of obedience, but how obedience and faith are connected to one another. And his point overall, as he writes through, or as he writes, he's saying that saving faith is an active faith. He's stressing that saving faith responds to the spoken word of God because it rests and trusts in the promises of God. He wants his readers to know that saving faith is internal, but that it exhibits itself in obedience that's external. He wants them to understand that there is decisive action that's required and there's a changed life that results. God revealed himself to Abraham. And Abraham responded out of that assurance And conviction of God's promises, specifically in this case of the land that he would inherit. And his faith made that future land and that unseen inheritance both present and visible. But it wasn't 
merely an assurance of this temporal land. It wasn't conviction of his possession of the temporal or the temporary, but it was an assurance and a conviction of an eternal city, the eternal city of God. That we'll talk more about in just a minute. And the language indicates, it's interesting, the language indicates that he responds immediately and therefore with eagerness. Someone even said that they thought that he left before the Lord was even finished speaking. I think it's more likely that he left, as one commentator said, while the sound of his voice was still ringing in his ears. I can't imagine Abram leaving while the Lord was speaking. But he did so with eagerness, and he did so despite the fact that he didn't know where he was going. He left not knowing. He left despite the fact that there was unpredictability. He left even though there was a lack of complete clarity, because he doesn't know. We don't know about where he's going or where the land is until Genesis 13 and 15. Brothers and sisters, we possess that same faith. We possess that same faith that elicits obedience. You know, by God's grace, He's revealed Himself to us. He has raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He's removed our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh. He's given us the gift of faith. And it is a faith that makes the future present and the unseen visible. But it's an active faith. It is a faith that responds when the Lord speaks. And of course, He speaks to us through His Word. And we don't have to be contemplating a move to another city or contemplating a move to another state or contemplating a move to a house. We don't have to be contemplating anything like a new job, anything that involves leaving one thing to another for this to apply. The application is much broader than that. Because the truth of the matter is, the faith we possess responds in obedience to the Word of God in whatever role we possess, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, regardless of what we might be asked to do, regardless of what is expected And whether we know where it will lead or not, or regardless of if we know what the consequences might be or not. Because he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. So let me ask you a few questions. This is the first round of several questions tonight. Questions that I hope that you will, you will ponder and even that, that will resonate and that you will leave asking and ask throughout this week. Are you trusting in God's promise to justify you, to sanctify you, and to glorify you through the finished work of Christ by the power of the Spirit? Are you assured of the hope that you have in Him? Do you possess the conviction that those things that we cannot see, those things that we mentioned last week, right, the, His return and our resurrection and the glorification of our bodies, uh, being with Him, no more crying and, and having every tear wiped from our face, 
No more pain, no more death, no more mourning, no more injustice and everlasting peace. Do you possess the conviction that those are a reality even though we do not see them? Do you have the assurance and conviction that the Lord Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you? And that He is the way to that place. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way and truth and life to that place. See, that only way to that place that He is now preparing. And we don't need to know. Are you in that place where you don't need to know the details of that journey as long as you follow Him? And does the assurance, that that assurance and conviction lead you to obedience as a husband and as a wife or as a child or as a mother or as a father or as a son or daughter, as an employer, as an employee, as a member of our church or as a member of the community? Does it lead you to obedience regardless of where it might lead and what the consequences might be. Does your life exhibit a trust in the fact that he who has promised and spoken to you is faithful? So that's the first. Obedience. Faith elicits obedience, but faith also elicits distinctiveness. Look at verse 9. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And I think it's very interesting that when Abraham arrives in Canaan, he does not establish a residence. He doesn't, he continues to live in tents. He continues to live in those temporary dwellings without foundations. He remains a sojourner. He remains nomadic. He's a resident alien. He's not a citizen. He doesn't have civil rights. And he didn't do things that we would consider kind of planting himself or setting, setting roots in place. He lived among the people of Canaan as a foreigner. And he never really settled down because he never really fit in. And he didn't really fit in because he never really belonged. And I'm just not making that up. That's the word as it's defined in verse 13. And it's, it was actually a pejorative term, that word exile. It was someone that, you know, something that somebody would use negatively to someone. You exile. And Abraham owned it. He owned it. He acknowledged that that was in fact true. He didn't run from it because he was only passing through. In his mind, he was only passing through. It, Canaan itself, the land that was promised, was a temporary situation. We say, well, how do we know that? And why, why is that? Look at verse 10. It says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And look now at verse 13. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham was not only assured and convicted that the Lord would take him and lead him to the promised 
temporal land, he had the assurance and the conviction that that Canaan was not the final destination. Yes, it was the promised land, but it wasn't the complete fulfillment, complete and final fulfillment of the promise. There was more. He knew Canaan was a part of the promise, but he also knew that Canaan itself pointed to something far greater. And his looking forward was a continuous expectation of absolute certainty. Absolute certainty. He was absolutely certain that his permanent residence, not temporary, but permanent, was in a city designed and built by God. He knew by faith that he was a citizen of a kingdom far greater than Canaan. And the city that he was going to live in was going to be more magnificent than any city that he could see through the tent, through the opening of his tent. He knew one day that he was going to belong. He knew one day he was going to fit in. He knew one day that his traveling would end. He knew that all of what had been promised, he knew that it would not be realized during his earthly existence. And therefore, he didn't attempt to make it a reality. He didn't attempt to make or create heaven on earth. He was going to a place that God was building. He didn't attach himself to what was temporary. He didn't. He knew that there was far more. There was far more to be expected than the temporal blessings or benefits that he was experiencing. He knew that it was that it was only in death that he would experience the fullness of the promise. He knew that the complete treasure awaited him. He knew, as Peter said, right? he knew that God was keeping that inheritance for him in heaven to, or for an appointed time. He knew it was his already, but he wasn't experiencing it yet and wouldn't be Until, to use some words from our confession, until he passed into glory. So in life, he was an alien, a stranger, and an exile. But in death, he was an owner. He would own it. He would finally be the owner that God had promised he was and would be. And he died in faith, believing that to be true. And he was rewarded because of that faith. And brothers and sisters, again, we possess that same faith. A faith that elicits distinctiveness. Kent Hughes wrote, It is a dangerous thing when a Christian begins to feel permanently settled in the world. So here are a few questions. Again, like I said, I'm going to be asking several tonight. How would you describe yourself? Do you live in a constant dissonance with the world? 
Do you live in a constant state of feeling as though you, you're out of place? Is there a continual feeling that you don't fit in with the world around you? Do you feel as though you are never at home? That you're a stranger and a foreigner? Even at times in the midst of your family, the, the extended family that may not be believers. Are you resolutely content trusting in and agreeing with God that what you have and where you are is enough? Are you storing up treasure in heaven? Because you know that your earthly possessions are not permanently yours and eventually moth and rust will destroy it all. Is your posture one of open-handedness? Where you receive all good gifts from the Lord by faith. And then you hold on to them loosely by faith. Never to clinch and grab hold, never to let go. Do you grow increasingly uncomfortable with what the world offers in terms of wisdom? Do you refuse to buy into the world's philosophies and vain teaching regarding problems that we face? Do you refrain from expecting and even attempting to create heaven here on earth? And do you refrain from becoming too attached to what is temporary and fleeting? Richard Phillips Writes, Abraham longed for foundations, but he chose the eternal instead of that which passes away. We can say the same about the splendor of those cities. They must have been impressive compared to Abraham's tents. But he compared them to the city of which God was the architect and builder, a city of speechless glory and infinite majesty. Abraham looked to what is to come, not contenting himself with the offerings of the world, not sacrificing his inheritance for the refuse of Of a dying humanity. Abraham's heart was in the city to come. And he placed his hopes there by faith in God. Brothers and sisters are we set apart and distinct from the world. And to what foundation. And to what city do we look. Do we have an eternal perspective. Obedience. Distinctiveness. And the third, reasonableness. Faith elicits reasonableness. Look at verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, there is. There's a question as to who is actually the subject of this of verse 11. Okay, uh, there are some there are debates that are had in the midst of this based on mark you know little markings in the languages and things like that. Um, there are some like Philip Hughes who believes that this is a good translation that I read from the ESV. There are others like F. F. Bruce who says that it would be better read like this. By faith, he, Abraham, also together with Sarah, received power to beget a child when he was past age, since he counted him faithful who had promised. 
And I point this out simply to say that, that it exists. Uh, I'm not here to answer that question because there are men much smarter than I am who disagree. Um, I, I think what's more important for us here is that the emphasis is on the fact that these two were vo- both very old. Okay? They're both very old. They're beyond childbearing years. Um, Sarah had been through menopause. And so, humanly speaking, the author is saying, humanly speaking, it was impossible for these two to conceive. And we give them a hard time. We give them a hard time for their uh, initial uh, incredulity and and laughter. But, you know, they laugh at, what, Lord? But they were right from a human perspective. I mean, they were right to laugh. But, because it's laughable when you think about the impossibility of their age, but they didn't stay there. They moved beyond that laughter because they moved beyond the human perspective. And they moved to what the Lord had said. They knew what he said, but and, and they heard what he said, but then they remembered who was saying it. And they considered his promise. And so what they did was they they compared. They made a comparison and they they weighed their options and they said, Okay, on the one hand we have what is humanly impossible, conceiving a child. But on the other side, we have what's divinely impossible, which is the Lord lying and the Lord going against his promise. And they determined that the greater impossibility was the Lord lying. And they chose to believe it. Reasonableness. It was more likely for them To have a child than the Lord to lie. And so they sought the Lord, they found Him, they believed Him, and He rewarded them. Brothers and sisters, we would do well to do as they did and to not divorce faith from reason and reason from faith. Our our faith elicits reasonableness. It, It allows us to think rationally, not irrationally, logically and not illogically. And I know that that kind of flies in the face of how many approach faith, but it is true that blind, unreasonable leaps of faith are not biblical. The object of true biblical faith is God and His promises and His Word. And we should continually look through that lens at all of life and believe in what He has said because what He has said is true. We should believe and trust in only what He has said and only in what He has promised. And we should believe and trust in what He has said and what He has promised because it's true and it will come to pass. It's reasonable. And that's what faith elicits. So we have obedience, distinctiveness, reasonableness, and the last is anticipation. 
Faith elicits anticipation. Verse 13 again. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Now, I've already mentioned Abraham and his family no longer define themselves by where they had come from. They were not defining themselves or identifying themselves from their homeland. They admitted they were exiles and strangers. And so their identities had changed based upon the call of God, based upon uh, the belief that they had exhibited, based upon their faith resulting in obedience. Those identities had changed. They were willing to own those new identities. They weren't seeking to change them in any way, even though they didn't belong, even though they didn't fit in. They weren't trying to recreate themselves. They admitted who they were. But notice what they didn't do. They didn't go back to earth. Right? They were being, being foreigners and strangers and exiles and resident aliens. It didn't create a homesickness for earth. They didn't start longing for Ur. They didn't begin to focus on how good they had it back in Ur. And oh, if we should just go back. And the writer says, we know that because if they had, if they had felt that way, they had plenty of opportunities to go back, but they chose not to do so. And they chose not to do so because they weren't looking behind, but they were looking ahead and anticipating what was to come. And what was to come was a better city, a better place, a better country, because it was a heavenly So they were anticipating what was before them, not longing for what was behind them. They were focused on what would be and not what had been. They were anticipating what was going to happen, not what on, on what had happened. They anticipated what they were going to do and what they were going to experience, not what they had done or had experienced. They, they were longing for what was next, not what was past. They rested in who they currently were and where they were going, not on who they once were and where they used to be. They knew what was ahead was far better than what they left. They were living in the present with their eye on the future and not the past. That's as many ways as I can think of to say it. There was anticipation of that city that the Lord had promised. I want to draw your attention to two things, again, by way of questions. First is this. We need to ask ourselves to what or to whom we look. To whom or to what do you look for your identity? Do you look for your identity in in your family, in your ethnicity or race, uh, in your marital status, in the size of your family, 
in your occupation, or maybe even in the lack of one, or in the lack of any of those things. It's not going to surprise you to hear me say that if you are looking anywhere, or to anyone, or to anything other than Christ, and the promises that are yes and amen in Him, and the future that is awaiting for you, you have not left your past behind, and you're not acknowledging who you are presently in the Lord Jesus. That's why Paul says, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female. If you, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. To whom do you look for who you are? Secondly. Is there a time in your life when you thought things were perfect and you didn't want them to change and because they were definitely better than they are right now, you wish you could go back? Do you have difficulty letting go of who you once were as a sinner apart from Christ and an enemy of God? And embracing who you are now in Him. And the fact that you are a son or daughter of God. And a brother or sister and co-heir of the King. And do you wrestle with the propensity to look to the past. And to people and events of the past to explain or rationalize and even blame for current circumstances and behavior of yourself and others. Living in the past exhibits a lack of longing for and an anticipation of the country that lies ahead. In any backward glance, as I was telling the children, any backward glance that we make is a glance, it should be a glance at the Lord, a glance at God and His grace and His faithfulness and how He has worked in the past so that when we see what He has done, look what God has done so that we might be reoriented to what lies ahead. That we might be reoriented toward that faith that is ours and it acknowledges the present and looks to the future. The faith that, because the faith that we've been given elicits that anticipation. It elicits the anticipation for the future that is present and the unseen that is visible. And finally the writer says, and I already read it, I need to read it again. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Like Abel, and Enoch, and Noah, the faith that Abraham exhibited pleased the Lord. And the Lord was not ashamed to call, uh, or to be called Abraham's God. We hear it often, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we'll get to those two next week, or actually those three. 
But he's not ashamed to be called their God. And the reality is he is not ashamed to be called anyone's God who looks to him, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ, in whom he has revealed himself. God is not ashamed to be called anyone's God who trusts in his word and exhibits a faith that elicits that obedience and that distinctiveness and that reasonableness and that anticipation. He's not ashamed to be called anyone's God who seeks him. And if you're looking to him in faith, if you're looking to him in faith, you may insert your name into that statement. Have you thought about that? I honestly hadn't thought about it until this week. Hear him not only say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But hear him say that I'm the God of Betty. And I'm the God of Perry. And I'm the God of Jane. And I'm the God of Rob. And he says, Crystal, I'm your God. And you're one of my people. Jen, I'm your God. You're one of my people. Grant, I am your God. You are one of my people. Angela, I am your God. You are one of my people. Over and over again. Because of the faith that he's given you. The faith that you exercise. He's not ashamed. To call us his. Let's go. Father may we receive what has been preached. With faith and love. May we lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Would you now, by your Spirit, help us to see and respond to our current circumstances as a part of your divinely ordained, hope-filled path that we're walking in our journey of being conformed into the image of Christ. May we live by faith and not by sight. In his name, amen.